je suis enchanté. Où est la bibliothèque Voilà mon passeport. Ah, Gérald de Padier. Baguette. All right, we are back. I, I mentioned at the top of the show we were going to quote from the Sam McManus piece about the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum, and although we're going to be speaking with David Keene in our next segment at length about that, I just wanted to quote the following. Sam apparently ran into a newcomer to Fremont named Palma Malakar, who was just driving through Niles and saw a cardboard cutout of Chaplin and the sign for the museum. She pulled over and said to him, I'm glad I came. I love Charlie Chaplin. He was the pioneer. Without him, I'm not sure the movie industry would have taken off like it did. He's an excellent actor, especially without words. When you have expressions like his, you don't even need words. To me, he's a genius. Noted Mr. McManus, not so well known to modern audience as the Bronco Billy character, which will be the centerpiece of Niles' Bronco Billy Festival Friday through next Sunday. Anderson was the movie's first Western star, Nearly all the Bronco Billy Westerns were shot in Niles because it was conveniently located along the Western Pacific Railroad route. All right, let's continue on our lightning round, I think, for a few more minutes. Rather horrifying study from the West Virginia University School of Medicine is that uh, thanks to medications and other marvels of modern medicine, baby boomers are living longer than their parents. But a new study in West Virginia finds they're aging in much poorer health than the previous generation. The study is based on national health surveys over two generations and found that boomers, which are defined as those born between 1946 and 1964, and which include yours truly, are far more likely to be obese and have diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol than their parents were just 20 years ago. One reason? They're far more sedentary. More than half of boomers reported they don't exercise regularly, whereas only 17% of their elders said the same thing two decades ago. About twice as many boomers need a cane or a walker to get around and have difficulty performing everyday tasks as members of the previous generation. Overall, only 13% of boomers rated their health as excellent, compared to 32% of their forebears. It's noted that the boomer's sorry state comes despite the fact that fewer of them smoke than their parents did, and that advances in medicine have secured them a higher life expectancy. Noted Dana King at the uh, West Virginia University School of Medicine, it's not exactly a good public health outcome. They may be living longer with a greater burden of chronic disease. Okay, dear listener, if you don't have an exercise program in place, start thinking about getting one. And apparently uh, that's something you need to take to heart if you value your fertility and you're a man. A study by the Harvard School of Public Health found that men who watched 20 or more hours of TV per week had sperm counts 44% lower than those men who watched almost no TV. Meanwhile, men who exercised for 15 or more hours per week had sperm counts that were 73% higher than those of men who exercised for fewer than five hours per week. Researchers say exercise protects against oxidative stress, which can damage sperm cells, a benefit couch potatoes don't get. Here's an item we did last January, but I think we better do again. For the first time in human history, overeating is now more of a global health threat than hunger. More than 3 million deaths back in 2010 were attributable to excess body weight. Three times the death toll 
due to malnutrition, according to The Lancet. And another reason to get out of the house more often is that it cuts in half your odds of developing Alzheimer's disease. That was the heartening conclusion of researchers at the Rush Alzheimer Disease Center. This is actually something that came out the year before last. They tracked a group of more than 1,000 initially healthy seniors for five years and found that those who participated in social activities, like lunching with friends, volunteering, or just going to church, were 50% less likely to develop signs of dementia. As James Brown would say, get up off of that thing. Well, let's talk a bit about some good health news. And there is some good news in public health. Article by Sabrina Tavernesi in the New York Times notes that the prevalence of dangerous strains of the human papillomavirus, which is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States, and a principal cause, if not the cause, of cervical cancer, has dropped by half among teenage girls in recent years, which is thanks to the vaccine against the virus, which was introduced only in 2006. This sharp decline in the infection rate comes amid deepening worry among doctors and public health officials about the limited use of the HPV vaccine in the U.S. Health departments across the country are scrambling for ways to increase vaccination rates, while nonprofit groups are using postcard reminders and social media campaigns, and pediatricians are being encouraged to convince families of the vaccine's benefits. Sadly, there are signs that resistance to the vaccine may be growing. A study published in the journal Pediatrics last March found that 44% of parents, this was back in 2010, said they did not intend to vaccinate their daughters, which is up from 40% in 2008. The piece notes that because it prevents a sexually transmitted infection, the vaccine comes with a stigma. Some parents worry it promotes promiscuity, which is just inane. In fact, a Eugene, in fact, a Eugene Elzefon from Davis wrote the bee in the wake of that article, asking, "Would parents prefer that their daughters die prematurely from ovarian cancer? Sexuality is normal. Chastity for boys and girls is a virtue. However, if parents refuse to have their girls and boys vaccinated, they could be choosing a death sentence 30, 40, or 50 years down the road." I realize that for many parents, encouraging chastity is a religious obligation. However, I believe the Almighty would prefer to forgive a young sinner and allow them to live free of ovarian or throat cancer. Of course, in the wake of his uh, battle with throat cancer, Michael Douglas garnered some headlines by basically blaming his throat cancer on having had oral sex. Smoking and drinking can play a role in throat cancer, of course, but said Douglas, this particular cancer is caused by HPV, which actually comes about from cunnilingus. Of course, The Guardian did note that Douglas's claim has medical evidence to back it up. About 70% of throat, tonsil, and tongue cancers are connected to HPV, which is a big increase from what was judged to be 14% back in the 1980s. Anyway, it's another reason to consider getting people vaccinated, and I mean young people by that. It's estimated that about every other person, maybe 60% of people, harbor the HPV virus. They maybe have been exposed to it, didn't necessarily have the warts, which sometimes accompany an infection. But if 60% of folks out there uh, have something, then you've had sex with more than five people, your chances of having the virus is like, you know, 99%. 
And to my knowledge, there's no evidence to date that any kind of vaccination uh, later in life will be preventative for uh, throat cancer or, or cervical cancer. And I guess since we're talking about sexual matters, let's pick this one up. According to my current edition of Family Practice News, when it comes to erectile dysfunction, 75% of men with the diagnosis are going untreated. Noted the piece by Doug Brunk. Of men given an ICD-9, which is a coding, uh, coding key, diagnosis of erectile dysfunction, 25% receive any treatment for the condition. Treatment frequency was higher in men who had low levels of testosterone. 51% of them are getting treated and lower in those who have had prostate cancer. Just 15% of people are being treated. This came out of a, uh, a press briefing by Brian Helfen at the annual meeting of the American Urologic Association, and frankly, I find this to be a startling statistic. By way of disclosure, I would note that I do operate a clinic which treats the problem of erectile dysfunction, and I would say, uh, you know, uh, the treatments that are available out there currently, in general, are extremely effective. If you have ED, the chances of you receiving meaningful help is probably 90%. Of course, it's one of the markers of our currently buggered up healthcare system that uh, a lot of insurance companies don't think they should pay for this sort of treatment, so they don't. But I think it may be time to point out that, fellas, if there's one thing that might be worth reaching down into your pocket to pay for yourself, well, I certainly think this would be one of them. But what I find disturbing buried in this article is uh, what's described as what's being done for the 25% of men who are getting treated. Three quarters of those men are receiving phosphodiesterase type 5 inhibitors, better known to you as the Viagra type medications, Viagra, Cialis, or Levitra. This is followed by androgen replacement therapy in 31% of men. Well, that is problematic. Testosterone is being touted currently as, uh, you know, a cure-all for men of middle age or greater, and it's really being oversold, particularly in areas of erectile dysfunction. Very, very few men are going to benefit in treating their ED with testosterone. In fact, we should quote from a piece in the New York Times that notes that drug companies are touting testosterone therapy as an easy way for men to boost their energy, amp up their sex drive, and build muscle. But new studies suggest that many men, I would emphasize this, that many men are taking testosterone when they don't really need it, risking potentially dangerous side effects. Between 2001 and 2011, testosterone prescriptions for men 40 and older have tripled, but a quarter of them hadn't even taken a blood test to determine whether they actually had a low testosterone level, a condition referred to as low T. Doctors often prescribe the drug for fatigue or a drop in libido, which could be the symptom of other health problems like depression. We should note that testosterone therapy may cause acne, it may lower men's sperm count, and may increase the risk of liver damage, heart disease, and some cancers. Now, uh, these side effects uh, might be welcome in this correspondence opinion for some of the jackasses on Wall Street who are apparently undergoing testosterone treatments in the hope of being turned into alpha males, according to the Financial Times in a recent article, which notes that many bankers and traders hope male hormone supplements will, quote, sharpen their faculties and make them more competitive, unquote. The piece quoted a Dr. Lionel Bassoon, (laughs) 
That's apparently his real name. Lionel Bassoon, who once treated women for cellulite on Manhattan's Upper West Side, now specializes in testosterone therapy, saying, 90% of my patients have some involvement in the finance industry. Well, it's noted that some people blame testosterone for the machismo and aggressive risk-taking that caused our financial crisis back in 2008. Of course, Bassoon's patients swear by this stuff. And they quote John, age 40, a venture capital executive, is saying it promotes the positive side of aggression. Boy, there's a phrase for you, the positive side of aggression. And here's another item from Family Practice News, which I think I just, uh, I'm appalled by, but I have to read it, I think. Apparently, the FDA is now requiring an investigational new drug permit, or IND, for the use of fecal transplants. Even though a person's uh, intestinal bacteria are not, in fact, a new drug. Nevertheless, an announcement was made a few weeks back at a two-day public workshop convened by the National Institutes of Health and the FDA to sift through some of the evidence surrounding fecal microbiota transplants, which are now calling FMTs. It's noted now that from this moment on, anyone doing an FMT without a permit is violating FDA policy. Apparently, the, the, the issue at stake for these knuckleheads is there's no standardization of how the stool is prepared and filtered. Why, it could be blended in a kitchen blender, or by hand, or with a tongue depressor, or strained through gauze, or a coffee filter. Hello, this is a problem? I tell you, those who claim that, uh, you know, that the drug industry has too much control over uh, health care here in America appear to be on to something. This is a low-tech method. You can use various means to uh, prepare and filter the stool, and it will probably work just fine. Of course, they're also concerned about that dosing is all over the map, why it's listed as spoonfuls, grams, and milliliters. Well, yeah, if you know what you're doing, you can pretty much convert milliliters, spoonfuls, and grams, can't you? I am appalled. New Scientist notes that this, uh, this regulation may improve safety, but some are grumbling over the 30-day lag this now imposes on treatment. Yeah, you've got someone who's deathly ill. This is a low-tech, low-cost, amazingly effective technique, and you're going to basically put it on hold? because of the FDA and the NIH, this really is appalling. If the procedure's not dangerous and, and no one's claiming that it is, why be so restrictive? Let people go out there and learn what the best techniques are, publish the data, and go forward. Other bad news, which sadly I must again go to the family practice news to quote from, is this article by Mary Ellen Schneider noting that contraceptive training for family practice residents may be in limbo. There are now proposed revisions to residency training requirements. It's noted from the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education that would drop the current requirements that all residents be trained in family planning, contraception, options for counseling for unintended pregnancies, and related procedures. Instead, residents would devote a certain amount of time or patient encounters, quote, to the care of women with gynecological issues, including well-woman care, unquote. Oh, and you will have to demonstrate competency in doing pap smears and wet mounts. 
It's noted that without explicit requirements that residency programs spend time on contraception, such training could be dropped by institutions with religious affiliations. This caused Dr. Linda Prine, family physician, also medical director for the Reproductive Health Access Project in New York, noting that uh, there's no guarantees that the future family medicine workforce will be competent in birth control. And let's close with a bit of follow-up, something we mentioned uh, on this program a few weeks back. Follow-up piece from the Los Angeles Times reprinted in the B by Jill Cowan and Ann Gorman. Noting that uh, when Hogue Hospital announced this spring it would no longer provide elective abortions, officials at the esteemed Orange County Medical Center said the decision was made because of low demand. But records and interviews show the decision was closely tied to the Newport Beach Hospital's new partnership with a Catholic health care provider. Hogue hospital officials told the LA Times they wanted the deal to go through and new elective abortions were a, quote, sensitive issue, unquote, for St. Joseph's Health System, which has a, quote, statement of common values, unquote, that prohibits the procedure. Peace quotes Richard Affable, a top executive at St. Joseph Health who runs the Joint Health Network, saying that St. Joseph made it clear to Hogue that The abortion ban was, quote, sacrosanct, unquote, and required of ourselves and anyone we would work with. So on May 1st, Hogue Hospital stopped providing the elective abortions and promised to refer patients elsewhere. The California Attorney General's Office, which approved the alliance in February, is now investigating whether Hogue is doing enough to ensure that there are enough accessible alternatives for elective abortions, especially for low-income women. And... We wish them well in that. This is a disgrace that Catholic-affiliated organizations are allowed to come in, buy up hospitals, and just plain terminate the services available for birth control, contraception, abortion, etc. I know this from personal experience. I have worked side-by-side with physicians whom whom I respect, who are good people, who just philosophically um, are not only opposed to abortion, but if a woman comes to see them, say in an urgent care setting and reveals that she has an unwanted pregnancy, they do not provide any information as to how they might go forward to seek a termination of that pregnancy. And they think they're being medically ethical. And of course, I cannot agree. Last fall, physicians said they raised concerns about the effect of Hogue Hospital partnering with a Catholic institution but said they were told hospital care policies wouldn't change. Ha! And of course, the, the piece quotes that one of the weasels, executives at, at Hogue, saying that the hospital board was aware of St. Joseph's view on reproductive health and conducted a thorough review. The board determined that the continuation of elective abortions at Hogue was not the optimal solution to maintain the highest quality family planning services to women in our community. Well, if someone needs an abortion, it would be high-quality service to provide one, wouldn't you say? Anyway, we'll continue to follow that story. You need to go out with something a bit lighter. How about this from the miscellaneous file? Canadian authorities have charged Nestle, Mars, and Hershey with conspiring to fix the price of chocolate in Canada. Yes, apparently the Canadian Competition Bureau says that Hershey Canada is cooperating with the investigation in exchange for lenient treatment, while Mars Canada and Nestle Canada planned a vigorous defense. Authorities say senior chocolate executives from rival firms met secretly in coffee shops and restaurants to set prices. Cadbury Adams Canada, which was also implicated, blew the whistle on the alleged scheme 
and has not been charged. It's noted that fines could reach $10 million per company, but it's unclear how much each is alleged to have made on the deal, which might be considerably more. Who knows? Anyway, let's talk about uh, movies. What better way to do that than with film historian David Keene, whom we'll talk to after a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned. Blue and you don't know where to go to Why don't you go where fashion sits Putting on the Ritz Different types who wear a day coat Pants with stripes and cutaway coat Perfect fits Putting on the Ritz Dress up like a million dollar trooper Trying hard to look like Gary Cooper Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in the midst. Putting on the ritz. Have you seen the well to do?